Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, September 29th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story, we'll tell you about a young mother in Nevada who died six days after beginning a chemical abortion. And we'll take a look at the abortion-related cases the Supreme Court could hear in its new term opening next week. Teresa and I will talk to Ann O'Connor, Vice President of Legal Affairs for the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates about Illinois' plan to silence pregnancy centers and how the centers are fighting back. In political news in a nutshell, I'll recap the Republican presidential debate and report on what voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are feeling about former President Donald Trump. In abortion in the news, I'll reveal how two states are trying to get rid of abortion pill reversal and why pro-lifers in Wisconsin want Planned Parenthood to be prosecuted. In our closing segment, we'll talk to former Planned Parenthood Employee of the Year, Myra Rodriguez, who is now a passionate pro-life advocate with quite a story to tell. Please stay with us. Our top story tonight is a tragic one. A lawsuit that came to light this week in Nevada revealed that a young mother died last year, six days after beginning a chemical abortion. Aliona Dixon of Pahrumpf, Nevada, was 24 and the mother of a nine-month-old when she went to Planned Parenthood on September 22, 2022. It was determined she was eight weeks and five days pregnant, making her a candidate for chemical abortion. She took mifepristone and was instructed to take the second drug, misoprostol, 24 to 48 hours later. On September 26th, four days after taking mifepristone, she went to an emergency room run by Dignity Health at its Blue Diamond campus in Las Vegas. She was complaining of sharp lower abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding, and a radiologist who reviewed her ultrasound believed parts of her aborted child could still be present in her womb. According to a wrongful death lawsuit filed on behalf of Mrs. Dixon's husband and son, the physician treating her did not conduct a pelvic exam and did not consult with an OBGYN because the hospital did not have one on call. Mrs. Dixon was sent home. The next night, September 27th, she went to a hospital in Pahrump, complaining of vaginal bleeding and abdominal pain, but by now she was also vomiting and suffering from diarrhea. As her condition worsened, she was scheduled to be transferred to a Las Vegas hospital, but died in the Pahrump Hospital at 5.32 a.m. on September 28th. The Clark County Coroner's Office later determined the cause of death was complications from septic abortion. The wrongful death lawsuit names only the first hospital and the doctors and nurses who treated her as defendants. Planned Parenthood has not been sued, and certainly it seems, as the suit alleges, proactive treatment at the first hospital might have led to a better outcome. But the point that cannot be missed is that chemical abortion is what sent her to the hospital in the first place. Had she not taken those deadly drugs, she would be alive today, perhaps a busy mother of two babies under two. The story of this woman's death has gone largely unreported, except in some Nevada news outlets and the pro-life media. We invited an attorney from Bighorn Law, which filed the suit, to come on the show, but an assistant there told me they would not give an interview to an anti-abortion organization. The U.S. Supreme Court will open its new term Monday, and pro-lifers are watching to see if three abortion-related cases will be accepted for review by the justices. 
The U.S. Supreme Court will open its new term Monday, and pro-lifers are watching to see if three abortion-related cases will be accepted for review by the justices. The first two were reported on two weeks ago. Both are related to undercover videos released in 2015 that showed the gruesome reality of fetal harvesting in the abortion industry. Involved in the cases are Center for Medical Progress founder David Delyden, his colleague Sandra Merritt, and pro-life activists Troy Newman of Operation Rescue and Albin Romberg, who were instrumental in setting up the operation. The case, Center for Medical Progress versus Planned Parenthood Federation of America, challenges a lower court judgment that awarded $16 million in damages and lawyers' fees to Planned Parenthood on its claim that it was financially harmed by the videos. The Supreme Court is being asked whether Planned Parenthood can claim damages based on a defendant's public speech. The second case is Center for Medical Progress versus National Abortion Federation, and it challenges a lower court ruling that ordered Delighton not to release hundreds of hours of video taken at Federation conferences. At issue is whether the district court order suppressing Delighton's speech is constitutional. Attorneys involved with the cases are hopeful that at least one will be reviewed by the court. We should know fairly soon whether or not the justices will accept one or both cases. The third case concerns the abortion drug mifepristone, the first of two drugs that make up a chemical abortion. Food and Drug Administration versus Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine asks the court to decide if the coalition of pro-life physicians and organizations have standing to challenge changes the FDA made in 2016 and 2021 about how the drug can be obtained and how long into pregnancy it may be used. The court also has been asked to rule on the legality of those changes. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last month that the drug should be prescribed only after an in-person examination by a physician and should not be sent through the mail. The appeals court also ruled that the FDA's decision to extend use of the drugs through the 10th week of pregnancy from the 7th week would make the drug more dangerous for women and that the standard should return to 7 weeks. But the U.S. Supreme Court stayed both of those rulings, suggesting the justices will decide to review the case. We'll keep you posted. Since the fall of Roe, pro-abortion states seem to be in competition for the title of most abortion-friendly state in the nation. Illinois is one of these states. Minor girls can have abortions without even notifying their parents. There is no waiting period, no ultrasound prior to abortion is required, and there is no informed consent. Illinois Medicaid and most private insurers pay for abortion. The state then went after pregnancy resource centers with two laws, one that was enacted in 2016 but blocked since 2017 would require pro-life medical providers and facilities to refer women to abortion providers and to counsel them on the benefits of legal child killing. The second law, called SB 1909 and signed by Governor Jay Pritzker in July, targeted pregnancy help ministries by labeling their constitutionally protected speech, but not abortion facility speech, as deceptive business practices. NIFLA, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, is involved in the fight against both laws, and we've invited Ann O'Connor, Vice President of Legal Affairs for NIFLA, to give us the latest. Welcome to the show, Ann. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you ladies. Well, good to see you, Ann. But before we talk about the cases, tell our viewers a little bit about NIFLA. Yes, NIFLA stands for the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, and we're a public interest law firm based in Virginia that serves pregnancy centers in the legal and medical arenas. So we just try and help them do things with excellence. We have over 1,700 centers that are members across the country. All right, so you were in federal court in Illinois last week to fight, I think, the 2016 Healthcare Right of Conscience Act. 
it was a three day trial, I think. And can you tell us what went on? Yeah. So uh, 2016, Illinois passed a law that amended their Conscious Protection Act. You know, every state has a law that says if it violates your conscience to participate in certain things like abortion, sterilization, euthanasia, birth control, then you have a right of conscience as medical providers not to participate in those things. So it's it's great their protections statewide and also there's a federal law that says the same thing. So um, what happened in Illinois is they amended the law and said, okay, even though you have this conscience protection right, you still have to make a referral to those things, abortion, birth control, sterilization, and you have to counsel on the pros and cons of these things. So for us pregnancy centers and for our pro-life medical providers, they would have to counsel uh, a woman who is thinking about abortion on the benefits of abortion, which we know there aren't any. So, uh, and we're not making a direct referral to an abortionist. That's that's participating too much. The state showed no, um, that there was no need, like women know where they can go get an abortions. It's eagle, easy to look it up, especially in a state like Illinois that has become an abortion destination. So right away we challenged the law and it's taken this long to get to trial, seven years later. Um, it wasn't joined in 2017, thank goodness. So it never went into effect. So our centers have not had to comply with the law. And we thought after we won NIFLA versus Becerra in 2018, that you know was the great first amendment case for pregnancy centers that Illinois would settle, but they didn't. They fought as hard as possible. So we were in trial, it was a bench trial, meaning just a judge, no jury. And it was federal district court in Northern Illinois. It was for three days and we had eight, uh, witnesses testify on behalf of pregnancy centers. We had pregnancy center directors. We had medical directors. We had two medical ethics uh, professionals, experts testify. Um, and their testimony was, you cannot force pro-life people, people with th this strong of a religious opinion to do these things. It's not the standard of care in the medical world that we should have diversity among medical providers, that medical providers don't leave their personal uh, opinions and feelings and beliefs at the door when they get their medical license. It was excellent. The state had one witness, only one witness, and, and he was also a medical ethics expert. And it was interesting because he, he testified he was a practicing Catholic, that he himself would not perform an abortion, but he felt like it was his moral and ethical obligation to refer for abortion. And he even said he refers to Planned Parenthood. So it was difficult to listen to his testimony. That was the only testimony the state put on. At the end of the trial on Friday, the judge asked for briefing from the attorneys, which is normal. Um, they have about 30 days to submit those and then the judge will decide. So we'll be hoping to get an opinion on that in the end of October, sometime in November. It is a big case because if we win there, sends a message across the country, right? Don't do this to us. If we lose, 
will of course will appeal. Alliance Defending Freedom is representing NIFLA and several of our pregnancy center members. Thomas Moore is representing um, a doctor and also several pregnancy centers. So both teams were there at the plaintiff's table putting on their cases. It was great. But if we lose, we would definitely appeal. Um, but if we lose, it will send a message to states like California, uh, New York, Vermont, who just can't wait to go after pregnancy centers any way they can to try and pass this kind of legislation to force us to do those things that violate our conscience. Well, and are you optimistic about the ruling? I just can't see how the judge could rule against us. How could he say it's okay to violate your conscience and make these kind of referrals? And how can he say if we don't believe there are any benefits to abortion, how can we counsel a woman when we don't believe what we, we, we would be saying in our medical experience and practice? So I it would it would be very difficult for me to believe he could rule that way. He might do something middle of the road, but he's also the judge that gave us an injunction during the summer against the other bill that you were talking about. So we're hoping he uh, understands the issues. Yeah, well, so Anne, you mentioned NIFLA versus Becerra, and that was a U.S. Supreme Court case. And I can think of cases in a lot of different places, Baltimore, other places, and they're always trying to force pregnancy centers to reverse to refer for abortion, and they always lose. So yeah. why do they keep bringing passing these laws? Yeah, you're right. I mean, well, this is a little different than the California NIFLA versus Becerra case. In that case, they required us to post in all our advertising and in our waiting rooms, basically you know, here's where you can get a free abortion, call this 800 number. Um, that was a little different twist than what Illinois is trying to do, which is regulate medical professionals who are licensed. And when you, when you license someone in your state, you have the ability to do some regulation of them. So that's the angle that they're trying to fall under in Illinois. So, Anne, just um, if you can expand a little bit on the, the law that was enacted in July, and, and there was a favorable preliminary ruling on that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in July, just to show you how radical Illinois is, they passed another law that said pregnancy centers cannot advertise deceptively, okay? And they admitted that the misleading and deceptive consumer fraud laws already apply to pregnancy centers. They also admitted that no one has ever made filed a complaint against a pregnancy center in the 30 years that that law has been in effect. Um, but they amended that law just to give a special provision for pregnancy centers saying they can't advertise deceptively, which would include saying something, writing something or omitting something, which who knows what that could be. It's so vague, right? And the, the such what undid Illinois was their attorney general, Raul, he was a sponsor of the bill. He sat with Planned Parenthood and lobbied on the bill. He had a huge press conference when the bill passed at Planned Parenthood with the Planned Parenthood banner beside them saying, yes, we got them. We're going to go after them. We're going to close down pregnancy centers. So when the judge heard all that testimony, he's like, whoa, we're targeting a group of people because of their viewpoint. And we don't do that in America. That violates the First Amendment. 
And this has a chilling effect on them even before it's enforced against them because they don't know what they can say, not say. They don't know if they're omitting something. So, it, I mean, it really upset all the pregnancy centers in Illinois. Like, you know, we're afraid the attorney general is going to come after us. And the fines for violating it were $50,000, which, you know, that's the budget for some pregnancy centers. So it was a very oppressive law uh, at the, the uh, preliminary injunction hearing. And we were represented by Thomas More Society there. At the injunction hearing, it was so interesting. Uh, four of us testified, two SABA counselors, because the law also applied to them, an executive director and myself, to show what the chilling effect was upon us. And the state did not put on a case at all. They weren't prepared at all. They had to admit there's never been a complaint filed against the pregnancy center. They had to admit that their boss, the attorney general, was promoting the bill and going after pregnancy centers and that he was with the side that wants to close us down, the side that is involved in this huge debate. So uh, by the end of that hearing, and the court kept us till seven o'clock that night, he was going to get through that case no matter what, kept the whole courthouse open. Um, by the end of that hearing, he said some great things. If I could just read a couple things to you. He said, sure. uh, Justice Scalia once said, this is how he opened his opinion. Justice Scalia once said, he wished all federal judges were given a stamp that read stupid, but constitutional. He goes, this law, SB 1909, is both stupid and likely very unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> So it was, it was a great day for justice, for pregnancy centers, and for pro-life. Right. So you have the preliminary injunction, and then what happens next? Well, the state could have appealed, and they decided not to appeal. So I, I Thomas More is deciding now what their next step is. They might file a motion for summary judgment just based on all the facts that have been entered so far to show that it it's unconstitutional and, and has a chilling effect on our First Amendment rights. Well, Anne, thank you so much for helping us and our viewers understand what's happening in Illinois. And thank you for all that you and, and Nifla do for the babies and their moms. And we really appreciate you joining us. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. The second Republican debate on Wednesday gave seven presidential hopefuls another opportunity to distinguish themselves in a crowded field. But the absent frontrunner was on everyone's mind during the two-hour event at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie blasted former President Donald Trump for missing the debate. And in response to the evening's lone question on abortion, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said the former president should have been on the stage to explain why he called Florida's heartbeat bill a terrible thing in an interview with Meet the Press last week. DeSantis said Republicans should not be scared to stand up for what we believe in regarding abortion. I think we should hold the Democrats accountable for their extremism, supporting abortion all the way up until the moment of birth. That is infanticide, DeSantis added. After the debate, the Trump campaign described the slugfest as boring and inconsequential and suggested the Republican National Committee cancel future debates and focus on unseating Joe Biden. Nevertheless, the third debate will take place November 8th in Miami. Meanwhile, on the campaign train, front-runner Trump leads the Republican primary field comfortably in both Iowa and New Hampshire, according to a CBS poll. 
and most of his supporters are backing him enthusiastically. His current margins would translate to him getting half of Iowa's delegates and the lion's share of New Hampshire. GOP voters in both states overwhelmingly say their focus is on national, not state issues. One important difference is on abortion. In Iowa, most GOP caucus voters want abortion to be illegal, but would also criminally punish a woman for having one. That's something pro most pro-life leaders opposed, and it's also opposed by New Hampshire voters. Trump's big lead is attributed to his being seen as prepared as a strong leader, though few describe Trump as likable. While fewer than half describe him as a true conservative, he nonetheless has a dominant lead among self-described conservative voters. Perceived electability is also very important, and Trump is the only candidate whom a majority of Republican primary voters think would definitely beat President Biden. Trump is committed to attending Nevada's caucus on February 8th after the state implemented rules that are seen to heavily favor the former president. The Nevada GOP will hold a caucus despite a 2021 law from the Democratic legislature and governor saying the state would turn towards primaries instead. Nevada GOP Chair Michael McDonald told the messenger that the rules are very, very easy. If you want to come into Nevada, you've got to go through the caucus on February 8th. To take part in the caucus, candidates have to pay $55,000 in fees and commit to skipping the state's primary, which takes place just a few days before the caucus. If you're confused about the difference between a primary and a caucus, you're not alone. Primaries are run by state and local governments, and voting happens through secret ballot. Some states hold closed primaries in which only declared party members can participate. In an open primary, all voters can participate, regardless of their party affiliation or lack of affiliation. Caucuses are private meetings run by political parties. Participants divide themselves into groups according to the candidate they support. At the end, the number of voters in each group determines how many delegates each candidate has won. For months, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has said he plans to continue his long-shot challenge against President Biden in the Democratic primary, rather than dropping out to launch a third-party bid. But lately, Kennedy's message has seemed to shift, including publicly telling a voter that asked about his plans that he was keeping his options open. If Kennedy does decide to leave the party of his famous father and uncles to run in the general election, one potential leading spot may be the Libertarian Party, which at the moment lacks a widely known candidate, but has excelled at securing ballot access. In the general election, Democrats worry that a third party run by Mr. Kennedy could draw votes away from President Biden and help elect former President Donald Trump. They have expressed similar concerns about no labels, the bipartisan group trying to recruit a moderate candidate for a third party run, and also about the progressive scholar Cornell West who is already in the race to lead the Green Party's ticket in 2024. One Detroit Democrat is blocking a key abortion rights package that is part of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's fall agenda. This isn't the first time State Representative Karen Whitsitt joined Republicans on legislation. Last week, she voted against the Reproductive Health Act in a House committee. Whitsitt's vote matters because with a slim 56 to 54 majority, the Detroit lawmaker's vote wields the power to tank Democratic priorities. Whitsitt told Axios that she's not going to be a rubber stamp for the Democrats. She needs to know more before voting to allow state Medicaid funds to be used for abortions and repealing a mandatory 24-hour waiting period for patients from the time of consultation to the procedure. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom will take part in a televised 90-minute debate moderated by Fox News' Sean Hannity on November 30th. DeSantis said on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, that he looks forward to the opportunity to debate Gavin Newsom over our very different visions of the future of our country. Andrew Romeo, DeSantis' campaign spokesman, said in a statement, the contrast of California's failure to Florida's successes demonstrate that Ron DeSantis is right. Decline is merely a choice. Whether Newsom or Biden is the Democrat nominee in 24, they both offer the same failed and dangerous ideology for America that helped us get into this mess. We look forward to putting Ron DeSantis' record of success up against him, he continued. Virginia early voting is now underway and Louisiana early voting for their primary begins tomorrow. To stay in the loop in everything about the November elections and to sign up for our election trainings, go to ProLifeVolunteer.com. And that's political news in a nutshell. California is suing Heartbeat International and several affiliated pregnancy resource centers over the abortion pill reversal procedure. The procedure that has already seen the birth of more than 4,000 healthy babies since 2015 is a way for women to try to save their babies if they've had a change of heart after taking the first pill. Women are given progesterone, a hormone that's vital in the early stages of pregnancy. Progesterone blocks the body from absorbing the abortion drug mifepristone and when successful allows the pregnancy to continue. California claims there is no scientific evidence that the method is safe or effective and that it takes advantage of emotionally vulnerable women making a, quote, gut-wrenching gut life choice. In a statement responding to the lawsuit, Heartbeat said, all major studies show that using progesterone to counteract a chemical abortion can be effective since it's the very same hormone a woman's body produces to sustain her pregnancy. To date, statistics show more than 4,500 women have had successful abortion pill reversals, and that number grows higher each day. The stories of some of these successful reversals can be found at heartbeatinternational.org. In a related development, a Colorado law that bans abortion pill reversal is on track to be enacted Sunday. Legislators passed a law earlier this year that declared that abortion reversal amounts to unprofessional conduct, leaving providers subject to professional discipline. But the law said the procedure could remain legal if the state's medical, nursing, and pharmacy boards agreed that abortion reversal is a generally accepted standard of practice. None of them have done so. And the abortion pill made news again in California, where on Wednesday, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law protecting doctors and pharmacists who mail abortion drugs to women in states where there are laws protecting babies from abortion. Ohio Supreme Court justices heard oral arguments on Wednesday about possibly lifting an injunction issued by a county judge that has been blocking the state's heartbeat law since 2019. Justices peppered Ohio Solicitor General Benjamin Flowers with many questions, leaving observers with the sense that the high court might be reluctant to lift the block and let the, and, and let the law go into effect. A coalition of pro-life organizations in Wisconsin is pressing prosecutors in the state's two biggest counties to prosecute Planned Parenthood for resuming abortion in Madison and Milwaukee. The pro-lifers are likely wasting their breath as the district attorneys in question announced last year that they would not prosecute anyone for performing abortions. While awaiting a judge's final ruling on the constitutionality of a law from 1849 that protects babies from abortion, Planned Parenthood saw an opportunity to crank up its killing machine again and has done so in the state's largest cities. Another Planned Parenthood abortuary in Sheboygan is set to resume operations. A woman who was twice arrested for praying silently outside an abortion business in Great Britain has received an apology from police and an assurance that it won't happen again. 
Isabel Vaughn Spruce has vowed to return to her post outside the killing center in Birmingham. Catholic Vote has learned that the Biden administration wants to eliminate the words mother, father, paternity, and his and her from childcare-related laws. Their proposal would substitute parent for mother and father and replace his and her with their. Finally, the regulation proposes to replace the gender-specific term paternity with the gender-neutral term parentage in order to be inclusive of all family structures served by the Child Support Services Program. A woman who vandalized a sign outside a Buffalo, New York pregnancy center has pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct and agreed to pay $2,500 in restitution. The Compass Care building was firebombed on June 7, 2022, in what was the first attack on a pro-life facility following the leak of the Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade. According to a tally kept by Life News, those attacks now number more than 300. In March of this year, 39-year-old Hannah Kamke went to the center at night to deface the sign, the second time Compass Care was targeted. And finally, the abortion extremist group Shout Your Abortion has erected six billboards along I-55, an interstate highway running through Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri, and Illinois. The messages on the sign include, God's plan includes abortion, and abortion is okay, you are loved. And that's abortion in the news. Our next guest worked for Planned Parenthood for 17 years and was in charge of three abortion facilities, winning recognition in 2016 as Employee of the Year. Shortly thereafter, she would become one of the most outspoken pro-life advocates in the Hispanic community. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, please welcome to the show Myra Rodriguez, who is also known as the Abby Johnson of the Hispanics. Welcome to the show, Myra. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you so much for uh, putting the spotlight on the Hispanics, especially in the pro-life movement. I think our voices are well needed. I agree. So please tell us what you discovered working at Planned Parenthood and what led to you being terminated. All right, well, um, a little bit on um, my background. So I did run three centers at Planned Parenthood. Two of them were non-abortion facilities, which is what I did mostly for 16 years of my time with them. At the end of that time, I became the director of the biggest abortion facility in Glendale, Arizona. And what I saw there, it's what has me on this side of the sidewalk now. What was that? Well. I saw women getting hurt. You see, for many years, I spoke about abortion being safe, abortion being needed for women, but I didn't see the aftermath, right? So after I got to see the women there and I will get them, see them hurt. For many years, I heard that the babies were thrown in trash bags, in red bags, but it's different when you're there and you're watching a baby being thrown in a red bag. When you're hearing the abortionist call a baby head trash, right? It's different. It's different when you're there. Now, for many years, I told women, abortion, it's safe. It's safer than carrying a pregnancy to full term. But that was not the reality. What I saw there was women getting perforated daily. I blew the whistle on all these deficiencies on the abortion industry. And I said the abortion industry because it's not about one abortionist. That's how the abortion industry operates. So I blew the whistle on how women were bleeding um, more than they were supposed to, right? How women were getting hurt, how women take too long to recover. I blew the whistle on how uh, underage women will get abortions after being impregnated by adults, which means a statutory rape. I blew the whistle on all these um, illegalities by meaning that it's the falsifying a patient charge. What do I mean by that? I mean that the abortionist will mark on his records abortion completed without complication. And why is that? Because they're the ones 
who do these statistics. I mean, our statistics now on how abortion are safe come from the abortionists doing all these reports and no one is checking them. No one is making sure that in fact, the abortionist reports the complications that are happening in the room. So many times I argue with him. Of course, Planned Parenthood didn't like that, right? After being employee of the year in 2016, they awarded me as employee of the year for a reason. And now uh, I'm acting as a good employee, telling them what's wrong with the abortion is what's wrong in my center. And they didn't like that. Okay, okay we're gonna cut for a second. <laughs> Neil has to do something. Uh, hi, Myra. Can can we center the? Can can we put you in the center, please? There. Yeah, a little bit more in the center. Is that okay. perfect? That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Right. Are we starting over or? No, that's good. No. That's good. Okay. 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 <laughs> I hope not because I never remember what I just. Said. <laughs> <laughs> it's big from the heart. Yeah, yes, it's beautiful. Did did she talk about why she was terminated? No. Okay, are you going to follow up with that? Or do you want to do it there? I don't know. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I'm asking right. about okay. the lawsuit. Okay. Okay. okay, all right, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna, no, yeah, no, I'm that's okay. Just say something. I'm going to say something yeah. not on the script. Okay, well, it's earlier on the script. Okay. Five, four, three. So, Myra, did they terminate you once you started pointing out the deficiencies to Planned Parenthood officials? Yes, there's actually a case. There's a case that it's kind of like the breakthrough to my story. It was a 19-year-old girl, and the abortionist did a 16-week, um, I'm sorry, a 14-week abortion, which is a 14-week of gestation, right? That's about a little bit more than three months of gestation. And this happens through the dismemberment of the babies, right? No abortion after 12 weeks happens with just aspiration. They actually rape the baby part, right? So he had forgotten the baby head inside, and we had an argument about that. And that's when I heard him refer to it as trash. It was when I told him, we're missing the baby head. And he said, go look in the trash. Like, don't bother me for a head. Like, why are you bothering me for a head? Right, after that, I left. I called my supervisor and I said, that's it. I can't do this anymore. Either you do something or I will do something. You know, I will report him. I had kept all these records and proof of what he had been doing wrong for the short 10 months that I was a director. And then I saw all this ready to report him to the health department and the Planned Parenthood Federation. Of course, they didn't like that. And of course, someone um, told them what I was planning to do because of course I was not doing it this silently, right? I was very outspoken about my disagreement with this abortionist. So what got next was that I was calling to a meeting and this is how the meeting went. So I had not been in my office for a week because remember, I'm the director of three centers. I've been far away in another center and I get calling, hey, Myra, while you were out on Friday, we found narcotics in your desk. You're fired. And I was like, what? Um, no, this is a setup. It's a clear setup to protect the abortionist. And that's how my story got here. So, Myra, you then filed a, a wrongful termination lawsuit. And it was the only one in U.S. history ever um, filed by an undocumented worker. What was the outcome of the lawsuit? Yes, um, we started that lawsuit in 2017 against Planned Parenthood, and it's not easy, right? I mean, you're undocumented in this country, and then you decide to go after your employer, right? When you have been working undocumentedly. But I knew I had to do something. Why? For the pro-life movement. 
for other immigrants, but especially for the unborn, right? So I started the lawsuit in 2017, and in 2019, against all odds, we won that lawsuit. In the state of Arizona, um, a, peers, a bunch of our peers, citizens, good citizens, cited on me that Planned Parenthood had done wrong, and they fired me to protect the abortionist. Wow. Well, so you were an undocumented worker when they hired you. Is that part of their regular hiring practices? Even though they would like to say no, and, and when I said they would like to say no, you will read in my book what it has to do about how they deny hiring undocumented people. But I wasn't the only one. There were about four more undocumented employees in the state of Arizona, and I am sure there were a lot more in other states. It is a practice, but why? It's because the abortion industry is so not regulated, right? No one's looking after their records. No one's looking after what they're doing. So obviously they get away with a lot of things. I mean, we have heard the stories of how people non-licensed practice abortions, right? So, and then every day, all these legislations keep adding more safety net for them instead of the women that they're hurting, right? So yes. It is a practice that they have done in the past. I'm not sure right now, you know, since our laws are a little tougher on hiring undocumented people, but they did back then. And like I said, I wasn't the only one. There were four more other undocumented employees hired at Planned Parenthood, Arizona. Do you believe that Hispanic women are targeted by Planned Parenthood to encourage them to have abortions more so than, than non-Hispanics? Yes, and not only in the United States, but globally. Actually, I mean, they're pushing, I mean, I'm sure you guys know that Planned Parenthood has more affiliates than McDonald's in the world. In Mexico, it's called MaxFam. In Colombia, it's called ProFamilia. And they target poor women, Hispanic women. I mean, we, we as American tax money provide over 50% of the funds for Planned Parenthood International Federation to provide abortions to Latin communities. I mean, this does not stop only in our border. And our money travels across the globe to pay to kill babies from other races, right? But let's talk about the United States. Just along in my state of Arizona, the Hispanic community accounts for 38% of the population but we account for 47% of the abortions. How is it that in a 38% population, we're almost 50% of the abortions? That's because they target Hispanic women. I was hired because I spoke Spanish. Does it sound familiar? Yes, Margaret Sanger. She used to hire African-American people or African people in the state of New York in Harlem to run her first few centers. I was hired as Hispanic, as an immigrant, to attract my immigrant community to go and educate the immigrant women, the Latino community, and tell them, hey, you know, you don't have to just keep having children. We can take care of that for you. Uh, well, so Myra, what are, what are you working on now? Well, what am I not working on, right? <laughs> I do so many things. I wear so many hats. Uh, part of what I do is I volunteer for Prolove Ministries, which is a crisis line uh, where we serve and help women in crisis. Right, and um, I'm a case manager there. I'm also the global outreach coordinator for And Then They Were Now, which it is the abortion ministry that Abby Johnson funded and trying to take our message and our mission to other parts of the world and see if we can pull out abortion workers from other countries too, right? So our movement should not just stop in our borders, right? Also, I am the state director of Moms for Arizona, which is a chapter of Moms for America, because as a new, American citizen, proudly to say, I found the need of 
Thank you. I found the need to educate our Latino community in their constitutional rights, right? Why? Because they're the ones getting out there and voting for the wrong people, right? They're the ones that are fighting against the school boards, losing their, their parental rights, right? They're the ones not understanding that their daughter could have an abortion sent by the school and they wouldn't know anything about it. So many, many things that I'm doing, uh, besides being a pro-life speaker, I travel uh, across the globe and the, in the United States to speak my story. And I think you're also writing a book. I am. I'm actually done. <laughs> We're editing it. I can oh, wait for you, for you to uh, read it and for you guys. I'm hoping with that book, especially Catholics, right? I'm Catholic, born and raised Catholic from Mexico City. Uh, and I'm hoping that a lot of the people that are in the Catholic pro-life community will understand why it takes a Catholic, you know, like many Catholics that we hear today be pro-abortion, right? Like what gets them there? So I'm hoping with my story. But besides that, there's a few things right there that we discovered throughout my lawsuit against Planned Parenthood through those two weeks of the trial about Planned Parenthood. Many, many dirty stuff that had been happening that I didn't even know. Can you believe that 17 years there and I didn't even know that was happening. So we're hoping that this story brings um, uh, the other side to the side of light. We're hoping that the people that are on this side become uh, more understanding of the abortion workers, right? And I'm just hoping that my message is out there and people hear that abortion's not safe, that abortion's not okay, and there's no such a thing as a reproductive right to kill your children. So Myra, in closing, what advice do you have to young Hispanic women who may find themselves in an unexpected pregnancy? You know, um, they're being told that we're already targeted as and your life has been set to not being able to fulfill dreams like going to college or become professional. And, you know, because you come from this background that it's known as being the immigrant, right? The labor, right? They're already facing that kind of a challenge, right? So they're told that even with a child, it will be even worse, right? Like those, that's back in the old days, right? Like no woman should just keep having children, right? But we're here to tell them that's not true. Women are powerful. God created us powerful for a reason, right? And we can do it all and we can help them, you know? And all this misinformation, give it to them out there by the other side, telling them that abortion is needed, that they have to kill their children to become doctors or lawyers or whatever it is that they're dreaming of, it's not true. And many women, many women have provided this. And also that it's not true that it's okay to just want to be a mom. If you just want to be a mom, it's okay to do that, right? But this world is telling you that what our culture has been known for, which is caring for our families, caring children, it's wrong. And we're here to tell you it's not true. Our culture is beautiful. We come from large families and that's who we are meant to be. And we will continue to fight and to have 20 cousins, 30 cousins, because that's who we are. <laughs> well, Myra, thank you so much for joining us. And we definitely want to have you back when, when we've read your book. And thank you for sharing your amazing journey. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you, Myra. Good night. Good night. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. Don't forget, Pro-Life T-Shirt Day is Tuesday, October 3rd. Show your support for the unborn by proudly wearing a Pro-Life shirt. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to prolifegift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life. 
which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.